0: Hey folks, Matt Robeson here. I just wanted to let you know that we had a little bit of an audio interruption in today's show when host Paul Hodes introduced Natch Grays, today's guest. And so you're gonna hear just a little bit of a blip at that moment, but the rest of the show should be great. So we hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to Capital Close-Up on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and 101.9 in Manchester, New Hampshire. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, and we are podcast wherever it is in this fabulous universe that you get your podcasts out of the cyberspace Please subscribe if you're listening by podcast, like us, tell your friends, share about this show on social media. Well, as New Hampshire's school boards prepare for the school year, local planning boards are facing a very different kind of deadline. And that is tomorrow. August 23rd is the day. Uh, New Hampshire's towns and cities have to start following a package of new zoning and planning laws that were passed by the legislature this year in a huge omnibus bill. HB 1661, which is actually going to make some very interesting changes to planning and zoning boards in New Hampshire. And let's remember that New Hampshire is facing some serious issues around housing. And our guest today knows something about the bill, knows a lot about the law ...focusing on municipal issues and directed at a municipal audience, and he is chair of the New Hampshire Bar's Municipal Bar Section. Before joining the Municipal Association, Association Nate was a prosecutor in northern Grafton County, uh, working with three separate police departments. He received his bachelor's degree from Clark University and his law degree from the prestigious William and Mary University School of Law. So, Nate, welcome to Capital Close Up. We're happy to have you. Well, thank you for having me today. I'm very happy to be here. So you, this is actually a little bit of a different kind of show because we're going to do some deep diving into some legal issues. But the legal issues Um, surround issues around housing, because our planning and zoning boards in all the towns uh, and cities um, really uh, control what gets built and how it gets built. And um, as many folks may know, we're we're dealing with with some housing issues. But for our listeners who may not know much about the New Hampshire Municipal Association, Talk a little bit about the association, what it does, who its members are, and why its work is important.
0: Sure. So the New Hampshire Municipal Association is um, funded and membership is uh, consists of the 234 cities and towns in New Hampshire. So that's that's all of your municipalities across the state. You're all members. Um, and we provide a variety of services. Mostly, we provide some legal advice on a general basis. We also provide trainings to local boards, uh, especially uh, land use boards. So we go out. We we provide trainings for you know planning board one hundred and one, zoning board one hundred and one, um, and a variety of other trainings. And we also advocate at the New Hampshire State Legislature. So that's my primary focus at this point in time. I go there, I talk to legislators, I try to get things passed that are good for our cities and towns.
1: So when we're talking about a bill like House Bill 1661, which goes on and on for many, 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 many paragraphs with many different kinds of provisions, most of them, many pages, most of them not, in fact, related to uh, the planning and zoning issues that that I want to talk about today um, was is that how did you interact with the legislature uh, and that bill in terms of what the provisions were and how what they ended up to be? What 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 does it mean that you advocated uh, that you advocate at the New Hampshire legislature?
0: So uh, this bill is actually a few years old, uh, at least the housing provisions. Uh, it came up a couple, a couple legislatures before, so before my time at NHMA. Um, but this year around, it was packaged as part of Senate Bill 400. Uh, as with everything in politics, there's always some negotiation. It ended up being that this was one of the hot topics uh, for the year. I mean, housing is a, a huge problem across the state and across the nation, but we're certainly feeling here in New Hampshire, uh, from the business communities to tourist communities to uh, local government. And it's something that uh, was needed a lot of consideration. So it ended up being packaged as part of this omnibus bill, House Bill 1661. Uh, and there was a lot of discussion in the weeks leading up to that as to what exactly would be appropriate to To do as part of that to encourage housing. There's certainly uh, a variety of thoughts about what is most appropriate uh, and certainly a variety of opinions about that. And the really hard thing is, is because housing is such a crisis across not only our state, but our nation and across really the Western world as a whole at the moment in time, it's really hard to know what the best solution is. So um, we we, meaning I, uh, a number of other lobbyists, uh, a number of legislators talked about what our different organizations could support, um, what we would not support and what we thought might work to help promote uh, building housing in New Hampshire, especially uh, the workforce housing, you know, the, the housing that the people in their early 30s with kids are, are, are trying to buy at the moment.
1: So the pressures on on housing are are really clear. Rental prices are very high the supply of available rental housing is low um there are a, a, a good percentage of people who are looking for housing need, need to rent uh, the price of building single-family homes has has gone way up um we are although you know our employment numbers are are good um for a variety of reasons, uh, the stock of available housing hasn't kept up with the uh, the demands. And I think some some uh, experts uh, put the numbers at something like 40,000 units of housing are needed in New Hampshire right now to to deal with the housing crisis. One one of the possible helps that came along was the governor um, who Uh, uh, used uh, basically who who used federal money to set aside a fund of approximately 100 million dollars to make that available to shovel ready projects for developers um, to provide some incentive and help for developments that were ready to go to to get built. And uh, also in that uh, fund that the governor made available from federal money uh, was, if I'm recalling correctly, approximately 40 million dollars uh, made available to municipalities to um, uh, provide support and incentives to build what is called workforce housing. And as you said um in order to for an economy to grow, in order for New Hampshire to thrive and our New Hampshire economy to thrive, we've got to be able to have the people to do the jobs that are are available. And these days, I think it's much in the news. Uh, people are noticing that uh, that that work, that that it's hard to find staff. It's hard to find workers. Um, and part of the issue uh, while it's complex is that, you know, during the pandemic, people did move to New Hampshire. So we've had a significant influx of people in New Hampshire. Not all of them are wealthy retired people who are happy to happy to, you know, park park their their fancy trailers somewhere and enjoy the benefits of our of our fabulous environment. Uh, they're people of all kinds, including, as you pointed out, People in their 30s who are maybe starting families and looking, uh, you know, looking, looking for work, looking for careers. And if people can't find houses, it's really hard for businesses to grow and and to grow the economy. And the the kind of the front line of all of this um, are the towns and the towns with volunteer boards, planning boards and zoning boards, um, where the issues around development are really it's where the rubber the rubber meets the road. And there are many um, competing influences, so to speak, on planning and, and, and zoning boards. Um, if you're in a town, what's what's the right place to build something? How much do you build? What kind uh what what kind of structures do you want to have? How do the citizens feel about what what you're building? Uh, There's often a lot of NIMBY in New Hampshire, not in my backyard. Well, it's fine to attract uh, people who are in their early 30s and starting a family, but we're not sure that we want to have the kind of housing maybe that is required to to house uh, those young families. And if the young families move into my my town What's going to happen to my taxes Uh, because we pay for our schools with property taxes. If all those kids come in here, not only is there going to be all that noise on those playgrounds, but what's going to happen uh, to my taxes? What I'm curious about is that um, how does the Municipal Association, what's the thinking about those kinds of competing influences on the planning and zoning board And how did some of those kinds of issues affect your thinking and the association's thinking about the bill uh, that uh, is going to change some of the ways that planning and zoning uh, is done in New Hampshire?
0: Well, as you pointed out, it's an incredibly complex topic, and I don't think anyone has a silver bullet solution here. Um, It's it's incredibly difficult to wrap your head around because you do have competing interests. You have businesses who are looking to expand. They've had a really good, uh, you know, especially if they're if they're, especially if they're doing um, shipping um, or other sort of remote services. They've had a really good time during the pandemic, post pandemic. So those businesses are looking to expand. They might be in small towns that really don't have the the infrastructure or kind of the general setup that you would expect to have really that rapid growth occur. Um, and there's also a number of other things. Uh, you know, there's the other surrounding businesses. Um, people generally don't, don't move out into the middle of the woods with, with no services around. They, they like to have the kind of commodities they're used to. And we saw a pretty big influx, as you mentioned, of people from Massachusetts, from New York, from Other areas in the Northeast that have uh, a number of other services that we don't have, uh, simply because, you know, we don't have the population. We're not New York City. We're not Boston. Of course, we we wouldn't have the same type of of response. Um, So one of the things that we've really focused on is trying to to refine the process. Um, we, We certainly recognize that every municipality is unique. And really, when we talk about zoning, the really great thing about zoning is it begins at the local level. Uh, Whatever your zoning ordinance is, is something that was voted on and decided on in your own municipality. And it reflects uh, not only the values of your of the people who live there, um, but also what you envision your future to be. So, uh, you know, do you see a lot of growth because. You know, maybe you're one of those commuter communities that provides a lot of, uh, people live there, but they commute into Boston, they commute into Manchester, they commute into to Nashua or some other larger community. Uh, is it the case that, uh, your community is, is a really rural one that has a lot of agriculture? Is that what you're promoting? Um, and so because it's so unique, um, that's really, one of our focus is is on that local control aspect is to allow each municipality to decide what what's appropriate and i think there is a pretty broad recognition across the board that housing is a big problem um, i think everyone in the country at this point has seen it because we all know people whether they're family friends relatives um coworkers who have been looking for new housing and simply can't get it it's just not available um, and that really relates back to really the complex economic uh, functioning that occurred uh, as a result of the Great Recession. Because during the Great Recession, a lot of that was caused by um, by mortgages. Uh, the result of that was there's a lot of fallout in the construction industry. There simply aren't a lot of people who are doing construction now compared to that point in time. And there aren't a lot of people who are available to do these type of projects. So you know, on a personal note, I was trying to get my uh, my basement insulated this summer. Uh, I called around and everyone I talked to across the board said, this is too small of a project. It's not a big enough number. We're not interested in doing it. Um, and I think we're seeing that play out even on kind of the housing, the housing side of things. Um, you know, there's a lot more profit to be made, a lot more interest, a lot in and, and it's a lot easier to engage in, new large projects. And I think that's sort of the direction we're seeing with some of the developments that are being proposed around the state. Uh, You've seen them in the newspaper, a couple in Concord, uh, a couple in the the Manchester area where they're developing pretty large areas with quite a lot of of housing units for New Hampshire. I mean, we don't normally see developments of 50 houses. That just doesn't happen here. We usually see five, 10, Um, but we're seeing more of these large projects happen. And and that's something new. Um, that's something that hasn't been experienced uh, by for local boards very frequently. And so there's a lot of engagement there, not only uh, to help facilitate these projects happening, but also to do the other things that you'd expect municipalities to do. You know, have the roads ready. Uh, you know, have water and sewer. All of these other things that are available to allow increased density.
1: Mm. You know, it's interesting and uh, full disclosure in in terms of my some of my interest in the project is I'm I'm uh, these days I'm um, part of my day job is working as a green energy consultant and uh, I'm part of a team uh, which has um, made a proposal. We we have no idea whether it will be accepted and what the competition looks like, but uh, there's a very significant piece of property. Um, In Laconia, New Hampshire, the former Laconia State School that many people may have known about and read about that um, uh, the state is looking to move along to a developer with a vision for for developing. And it is a it's a large piece of property. Um, And what has been very clear during the process of of speaking to uh, state officials and city officials um, and planning people and uh, a members of a commission which worked on creating a plan um, is the the single the, the, the single most important thing we heard over and over again was we need Workforce housing um, in uh, uh, in 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 the community, Um, our community, our community's future economic growth depends on being able to house people who are working not, you know, up in the lakes region. Um, As as folks know, it's a it's a big tourist destination. There are a lot of second homes. And the community is one where there are, frankly, a lot of wealthy people, but also a lot of people who uh, predominantly are not the wealthiest, wealthiest among us. And and so the the importance of workforce housing uh, was just was was hammered home um, because, you know, we're we're in a kind of transition in this country where we're now starting to think about well given the supply chain issues uh, isn't it time that we started making things in america again you know so you've got a community like laconia which was a factory in a mill town and thinking about well you know there are all those buildings there that used to house people making shoes and maybe there are other things that we ought to be making again and if that is true, and we are in that kind of transition, we'll need the kinds of places um, to house people who who wanna who wanna work. And it, the the challenge the challenges are for many developers, people who invest in the in the in in the actual costs of the housing is that it may not always be the most lucrative kind of building to do. Um, So for a developer who is working on what's called penciling out the project, um, you've got to be able to find the capital to invest in the developments. You've then got to make sure that, you know, there's probably the demand to sell them, but you've got to be able to find the investment to do it. So I think what is happening in uh, Laconia in terms of the redevelopment of the Laconia State School, as you said, is being replicated in many ways across the state, with bigger developments being proposed uh, to put in more houses as as quickly as we can. So, Nate, I wanna I wanna ask you this question to kick off this section, which is: you know, planning and zoning, as we talked about in the first um section of our show. Is is very individualistic. It 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 goes it goes town by town. So we're going to talk about some of the changes that the new law that came in uh, made. But I'm curious about uh, a a little bit of an overview uh, in terms of the planning and zoning process. And my question is: Is there planning for growth that goes on at the state level? Or is it all done locally? I mean, is there a state policy about what should be built and where it should be built and how it should be built? Or is it all left up to the municipalities?
0: So there are some state policies. So for example, there is in statute, a state policy that workforce housing, which is really what we're focusing on here, uh, has to, each municipality has to allow a certain percentage of its housing to be workforce housing. So they have to really look at their local rules and encourage that type of building. There's no specific rule as to where in the municipality. It's just really geared towards getting them to have a certain percentage of housing being built incentivized for workforce housing. So there are small incentives like that throughout um, throughout the statutes. There's no really overarching plan. You know, the governor doesn't come up with some plan that says, hey, you know, we really want to develop this section of the state Um that's not what happens. it's It's more of these broad policies that say each municipality has to contribute to something like workforce housing uh, or or allow something like accessory dwelling units to to occur. um and that's really where we are at at the state level at this point in time,
1: so I want to go through some of the provisions and talk a little bit about about them and why they're there and what the impact will be. um. What the the first uh, provision um, in this new law talks about training for members of the zoning and planning boards. Um, uh, why, why is there a need for training and how does the training happen uh, if you uh, become a member of the planning and zoning board as a volunteer citizen for a very complicated job?
0: Well, as you pointed out, these are volunteer jobs and they are very complicated. So just very briefly, how it works is the local community decides what its what its rules are for building basically anything. And then, uh, then someone who wants to build something has to go before what's called the planning board. Um, the planning board looks at the local rules, decides whether that's allowed under the local rules or not. If it's not allowed, uh, then they say, I'm sorry, we can't help you but the person who wants to build does have the ability to appeal that decision to the zoning board of adjustment and the zoning board of adjustment can say, well, we, we understand what you want to do. It really fits within the theme of the local rules and therefore it's allowed, or if it doesn't, then they don't allow it. Um, And there's subsequent appeals from there using the court system. Um, But uh, as far as, as far as the, uh, Really, how these these new rules and this new training that is going to go into effect, um, it's really important because people who are interested in this topic, uh, housing or interested in helping out their community, are often the ones that are the people who volunteer for these boards. And they don't necessarily know how all these processes work. And as you mentioned, they are quite detailed. So it's really important to have uh, voluntary opportunities available to them so that they can uh, understand what it is they're supposed to be doing and what the rules are because there are some definite state uh, state rules that do apply. Uh,
1: another change that the uh, new law makes is to increase uh let's call it transparency um and in the process of planning and zoning. I mean, I you know, I, I, I you can just imagine, um, what it's like to wade into the the world of planning and zoning if you're if you're not familiar with the law or familiar with the rules, uh, familiar with the costs of applying to your local planning or zoning board. say so you want to build something or even make a change or you're now a developer. Um, and part of the new law requires that cities and towns post all the fees that are necessary for land use permits somewhere where the public can find them. Uh, Why was that change made?
0: That change was made uh, because sometimes you it's hard for uh, people who aren't familiar with the process to understand exactly what it's going to cost. So something simple like, you know, your plumbing permit, your electrical permit you might need if you hire an electrician or a plumber for your your house. You know, there's some sort of fee there, but you as just kind of the ho- the homeowner aren't going to know what that's going to be. Um, probably your electrician or your plumber knows what that is. They priced it into whatever their bid was to you. But these things can get very complicated. Uh, you know, if you're building on some sort of site that could be uh, like a wetland, so there's certain areas that will be protected um, and certain areas that would not, um, you might require some sort of specialized study, something like that. Uh, all of these things obviously have cost to them. They require different experts to come out uh, and weigh in. And so it's really important for um, anyone who's thinking about a project to be able to look at it and be able to cost that out uh, pretty accurately before they begin.
1: So um, I found a, a very interesting provision um, in the new law uh, tries to or or requires that Um, The planning and zoning boards uh, or the municipality um, match any uh, incentives or favorable treatment that they may give in their in their ordinances for housing for senior citizens, that they now match those incentives for what's called workforce housing development. Right. It's always been the the part of the part of the process, part of the uh, mindset of municipalities to provide uh, uh, adequate housing for uh, senior citizens who uh, often and generally are maybe on a a fixed income. It may be an income that is less than they were earning when they were working. Um, There may be issues around mobility. Um, and a need for senior housing has always been, I think, a really important mindset for municipalities. This law basically, if I understand it, says, look, if a, if a municipality gives any kind of favorable treatment to senior housing, whether it's allowing houses or apartments or buildings to be closer together, whether you're going to allow them to be built on a smaller lot size, whether we're going to make the process easier to approve um, senior housing or, or any other thing that would favor senior housing, you've now got to apply that to workforce housing. So tell us a little bit about why that was done. And in the course of your answer, could you also just give us an explanation of what qualifies as workforce housing development? What, what do we mean by workforce housing?
0: Or So we've been mentioning this term workforce housing quite a bit, and there is a statutory definition um, that it it is someone uh, who makes a bit less than the median income would be able to afford what this housing is. So think about what the average amount is someone would make in that particular county, and they'd be able to afford this housing um, as on their own. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have to get roommates. They could actually, you know, pay the mortgage or pay the rent. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about workforce housing. Uh, And it's really important for people who are starting out in their careers because they're not making a lot of money. Oftentimes, you know, they don't have a partner and they need to move somewhere to go to work. Um, You know, they they can't stay at their college. They can't stay at, you know, their, their parents' house. Um, They, they're going to go where work is available. And we've certainly seen a number of New Hampshire corporations that have had um, a pretty good couple of years and are looking to expand. So that's really what the focus is um, on the business side of things. Um, this particular incentive was actually uh, initiated by uh, New Hampshire Housing. Uh, they they certainly get credit for it um, because one of their focuses, of course, is to expand housing availability to lower income individuals. And people who are starting out their careers, of course, are lower income individuals. So. Um, it's not only on on really the tail end of things when someone is retired, they're a fixed income, um but it's also kind of at that beginning point in time. And so this is really was created to provide a balance there, to say, you know we know a lot of people who have served our communities for a long period of time. They retired. They don't have as much income. Um we need to have uh, incentives to allow them to stay uh, as part of our communities. At the same time, we want new people coming in. Um, we want new people coming in to uh, help us build our communities in the future. So I think that was really the uh, the thought process behind that.
1: Let me ask you this: the is you know we've we we hear the term affordable housing, and um, affordable housing is often housing uh, that is subsidized housing. I e there is some major financial help available to people who are uh, living or building affordable housing. And that can be controversial in communities because affordable housing um, uh, sometimes uh, uh, conjures up images of people that there may be may cause pushback in communities. Is workforce housing different than affordable housing? Um, is there overlap Are is it subsidized housing, non-subsidized housing? Uh, there's some overlap. Um, it's really a
0: broad term. So it, it captures not only affordable housing, so subsidized housing, um, but also a whole uh, set of income brackets after that. So most of what we're talking about here, most of the focus of this bill Most of the focus of Invest New Hampshire, which is that, uh, plan the governor had, uh, has rolled out the $100 million is really to focus more on, on the, uh, the income bracket where, um, people are, are paying for the housing themselves. They're not receiving government help for that. Um, but at the same time, you know, they're not making, they're not making as much money as, they may be later in their career because these are really people who are starting out in their career. So that's really what the focus uh, has been recently on uh, on these state uh, initiatives.
1: Uh, another provision of the new law, uh, and uh, it's interesting because uh, this is written in bold and italics in my copy of the bill, which I downloaded in order to have this discussion with you, and as lawyers, it's something which um, I think we ha- we come to take for granted uh, when it when we're talking about a matter before a court, uh, a judicial. You know, we expect if a judge issues an order, generally. Uh, the judge is going to say, and here's why I'm here's here's my thinking. Here's why I'm making making this order. Um, here are the specific things I, I considered. Here are the specific things I find as matters of fact. And here's my here's my ruling. I gather that up until the time of this law, that the land use boards were required to issue a. Final written decision to approve or disapprove an application. Um, but, uh, but, but that they didn't really need to be specific about the reasons. And if I understand what's now contained in this law, which says the decision shall include specific written findings of fact that support the decision. And if the board fails to make specific findings of fact supporting a disapproval, Uh, it can automatically be reversed if the person or entity disapproved goes to superior court. Um, uh, So that seems to be a very significant, very significant change in the law. And I'm curious how it came about and what's the thinking behind requiring boards to be so specific.
0: Well, uh, I'm going to push back against that a little bit because I was on a train with the office of planning development, uh, this past week. And as I agreed with them that really, this isn't that significant of a change because if you were already engaging in best practices, this what you, this is what you were doing. Of course, I'm coming at this from a lawyer. So I'm thinking the same way as you are, which is, you know, when the judge says, no, you can't do that. Your first question is why? And if you can't answer that question, that that's a big problem. Um, but I understand there are many people in the world who uh, who have wisely decided not to go to law school. And uh,
1: so this is, this thank is new goodness. to them. Yes. That's all I can say is thank goodness. We have far too <laughs> many lawyers as it is.
0: I, I, I agree completely. Um, and this idea is, is kind of new to them. And the thing that's always surprising to new board members right. when I do trainings for, planning boards and zoning boards is that basically what they volunteer to do is be a judge. They they basically sit here and make a decision about whether one particular person can do uh, one particular thing that they want to do. And so as a judge, they have all those judicial requirements, all those things we would expect as lawyers. Um, they behave in that manner. Uh, they conduct these hearings fairly. Uh, they shouldn't be biased. And of course, they should Make sure that whatever their decision is is clear, so everybody who's involved understands. Especially if it's a hotly contested, uh, hotly contested application. So a developer wants to come in, uh, put in a project, like we saw. Um, down just off 93 down in Bedford uh, a couple years ago when they were redeveloping uh, that lot that used to hold Macy's. Um, There were a couple iterations of the plan uh, and there was a lot of discussion at the local level about what was appropriate. There were a number of hearings uh, before the appropriate boards to really hammer out the details of what, what the most appropriate use of that land is as well as what would be uh, most beneficial for the developer. Uh, and eventually, they came up with a solution. Uh, but as part of that, of course, you have multiple boards hearing it, multiple appeals. And every time you do an appeal, every time someone new looks at it in a uh, the capacity of a judge, they need to understand what the prior judge did. Um, and that's really where this comes from, this written findings requirement. I don't think it's that new uh, of a of a change. Um, This is already what best practices were. This is just best practices now captured at at the statutory level.
1: Well, it's certainly good to hear that many, uh, perhaps most planning and zoning boards uh, were following these practices anyway. It makes a lot of sense. Um, But now the requirement that they do so, I think, sends an important signal, especially to those municipalities that may not have been following the best practices. And it does create, I think, a more uniform playing field across the state, um, especially because, as you say, these are quasi judicial proceedings. There are findings of facts, there are rulings, and um, people who are Uh, unhappy with what happens at planning and zoning boards can appeal the decisions to the superior court and be heard about the reasons and the findings, uh, for what happened. And there are certainly instances where people appeal, uh, to the superior court and for various reasons, the superior court says, well, we think you're right. We're going to send it back for a further decision or issue, uh, some other order because As as much as we may want to uh, depend on the good faith um, of the officials who are uh, on the planning and zoning boards, you know, it's New Hampshire. There are small towns. There are small town politics that can intrude. And it is not um, certainly in in my legal career, I I didn't do a lot of planning and zoning uh, work, but it 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 was it, it it didn't escape my notice that from time to time there were unhappy people who said you know this has nothing to do with my with my application um i i got crosswise with that person's sister um over something i said uh, and I was really sorry about it, but I bet she's talking to him, and that's that's what happened. you know and and that's just an example of the of the kind of small town where everybody knows everybody, uh, challenges that uh, you can face when you're uh, unhappy with a decision another another important uh, change is that the new law uh, works to speed up. Uh, the decision-making process, and theoretically, that would allow for more applications to be considered, um, more approvals. Um, what was the reason? Were, were things just were the wheels of justice just grinding too slow, or has this been a long time coming in terms of setting some uniform standards for the amount of time that a board has to consider uh, consider uh, an application?
0: Well. Just about every session in the last uh, few legislative sessions, the legislatures tinker with the timelines for land use boards. Um, I don't know if this will be the final the final say or not, but they've been tinkering with the times uh quite a bit. Uh, And that's usually because of uh, various scenarios that come up. And anyone who's ever turned on HGTV has seen one of those home reno shows, and they've seen, you know, every day that someone isn't building, they're losing money. Uh, And that's really one of the big incentives that came here of trying to speed this process up, um, trying to make it a little bit faster, a little bit tighter, um, so that we could actually get the really easy projects through, um, the ones that you look at and you know that, of course, they're going to be allowed to do that. They just have to go through the formal process. Well, at the same time, um, there are opportunities within the statute to allow these more complicated projects, um, the ones where the developer really wants to engage with the local community and is trying to do something new in that community to to have the opportunity to have the time to build the support for that.
1: Yep. And, you know, just... and just going back as we as we sort of begin to wind down the show, going back to the issue I was talking about before, small towns and and possible um, uh, reasons, illegitimate reasons for, say, the denial of an application. There are now provisions about appeals in this new law. Uh, on the one hand, it says, uh, if I understand it correctly, if a somebody who's appealing from a decision can prove that to the superior court that the board they were before acted with gross negligence, bad faith or malice, that uh, appellee or appellant, I'm sorry, that appellant, the person appealing the decision could be awarded attorney's fees. But if it turns out that the person appealing was bringing an essentially an illegitimate complaint. If he was if he or she was, you know, had no real basis and was just trying to get back at somebody and appealing to cause trouble or out of spite or malice in appealing to the court, attorney's fees could be awarded to the board so that if they knew there was no reasonable basis for their appeal, um they could be hit with attorney's fees um it it kind of it 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 ups the ante doesn't it for uh appealing a decision of the planning or or zoning board I'm, and I'm curious about your thoughts about How many how many times we're going to see attorney's fees awarded in these cases, which is relatively rare in New Hampshire, by the way. Um, For those of you who've never been involved with the court system, I commend you to stay away from the court system. But you should know that it's rare that attorney's fees are awarded in any case. Things have to be pretty bad before a judge is going to award attorney's fees. But this kind of ups the ante. I think it
0: does Uh, really the conversation on that section uh, really involved trying to cut down on, on NIMBYism is what I think it was because, you know, we want equal justice under the law on the, on the board side, you're sitting as a judge. You're not supposed to be biased. You can't just deny an application because you don't like Bobby Sue or whoever. Um, And then of course, on the side of, uh, you know the abutters, the property, the people surrounding it. Uh, you really want to make sure that uh, they're not wasting time to try to kill the project because time is money.
1: Folks, this is Capital Close Up. We've been having a fascinating conversation with Nate Gray's of the New Hampshire Municipal Association about new rules that have been put in place for towning for town planning and zoning boards to ease the process. To make it more transparent and to help provide for needed housing in New Hampshire. We'll be back next week with more. Bye bye.